when you're ready. Let's start this game. Welcome to Unstacked and Let's Unwind with author Gareth Brown. Let's find out about his writing process and debut novel, The Book of Doors. Hey, this is Sarah from the Bay County Public Library. Hey, this is Stephen from the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library. Hi, this is Gareth Brown from Scotland, uh, author of The Book of Doors. I feel I magically glow popped after reading The Book of Doors, the ultimate goal of an avid reader. Can you introduce our listeners to your wonderful new book? Sure. So... The Book of Doors is a novel about um, a woman called Cassie Andrews, who's living a quiet life as a bookseller in New York City. And then one snowy winter's evening, she comes into possession of a of a strange book, um, a magical book that if she holds it in her hand and thinks of anywhere she wants to be, she can turn any door into a different doorway. So she can just transport herself by stepping through a doorway into a completely different place. And so Cassie and her best friend Izzy are then exploring everything the book can do, which can you, as you can imagine, is great fun until they notice they are being followed and they discover they have fallen into a, I suppose, a secret hidden world of magic and power and money because there are other magical books out there and there are dangerous people who would do anything to possess a book as special as the Book of Doors. So we end up with Cassie having to fight for herself, fight for her friends, and I suppose fight for humanity itself. And the Book of Doors is one of the most anticipated reads of 2024. You are a debut published author, which this does not happen very often. You have star reviews and library journal and book list. You've been selected for February library reads choice by librarians. Librarians are loving your work, including this one. How has this ride been so far? Yeah, I, I have been very lucky and I'm, I'm delighted to have the support of librarians because librarians are the best people in the world. Yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, it's the whole journey's been. I've said to a few people, when you want to be a published writer, you get lots of advice not to expect something like this. So I'm almost like the exception to the rule. Don't don't expect this sort of experience. My agent put the book out and then went on a holiday expecting to hear nothing. He said, "Oh, we'll we'll touch base when I'm back in two weeks and we'll see how it goes." My previous novel that I'd written with him kind of died on submission, so nothing happened. And then the next day we were having meetings with publishers. He was, my agent was calling in from Italy, sort of on his holiday, trying to do phone calls and stuff. And we sold it in the UK and the US and in the US in about a week. And I think we're up to now about 18 or 19 territories and TV rights as well. So it's been, it's been a dream. It's kind of all a bit sort of abstract and unreal. And, you know, I'm still sort of pinching myself, but it's been fabulous. It's been a real ride. I saw that it got released in Netherlands first. Yeah, yeah, that was that was that was exciting. So I'm now officially a published author as of yesterday, and and this is the things you learn. Apparently, in the Netherlands, they they get a lot of um, export market from the UK, and obviously, people in the Netherlands read English. So, the Dutch language publisher likes to get a, a jump on their English language competition, so they put it out a week before. So, and I love the Netherlands, so I'm delighted that that's the first country where it meets the world. So, how are you celebrating all this? Well. Um, I'm actually, tonight, my wife is uh, from Malaysia, so it's Chinese New Year time. So tonight we're going out for a meal just coincidentally with family, but that's sort of acting as a bit of a celebration. I'm in London early next week because I have to sign some special editions that have been put out in the UK. So I think my publisher and I are, we're going out for a very nice meal in London on Tuesday, I think, with my agent. And then on publication day in the UK, so we publish in the UK on Thursday. So Thursday next week, my wife and I are going out for a very expensive meal in, in Edinburgh where we live to to celebrate because food is what food and books are the things that matter so that's the that's the way to do it 
I saw somewhere that uh, you relish the sensation of culture shock that comes with arriving in mm. new and unnew places. So can you kind of explain how that uh, helped you with the Book of Doors? Yeah, so I've always loved traveling. And there's something about the first maybe five or six hours when you arrive somewhere, particularly in a city, because a city is always very, very busy and frenetic, and particularly big cities like a New York or a Tokyo. Uh, and particularly when there's language barrier, it's all just a bit overwhelming, exciting, but overwhelming. And I wrote the Book of Doors in the midst of COVID lockdowns when we hadn't been able to travel. And I just felt the sort of frustrated need to go places and be places. So, and, and I love New York. So that's part of why it's set in New York. But the early part of the book, there's a lot of, oh, let's go to this place and let's go to that place. And that was, sorry, that's the dog in the background. That early part of the book where there was a lot of travel was really just me traveling vicariously through through the book and trying to relive some of the great experiences I've had in the past of going to, you know, France and, and Italy and, and Tokyo, I suppose. So yeah, it was me, me reliving favorite trips from the past. And your writing journey started with a book about the invention of time travel. And time travel is still a key player in the Book of Doors, um, even including kind of a conversation between the librarian and a friend on how it would work. What draws you to the concept of time travel? And if you could time travel, where would you go? I've always loved time travel. And and I don't think there's that many very, very good time travel books out there. There are some really good ones, but it's not an easy thing to do, I think. And, and, and I know it's a thing that some people struggle with as a reader and as a writer and yes the the novel that got my agent was about the invention of time travel and it was all about what if time travel was real and and I loved that novel and I think I was always a bit frustrated and we got great feedback but nobody could find a place for it on their list so I think when I was writing this one I just still had that in my bones and I still wanted to do a bit of time travel and and so it fitted nicely within within this concept it works with the idea of of, of the plot so and it actually the thing I like about this novel is, for those who've read it, will know there's a bit of sort of intricate sort of connections between the start and the finish and what goes on in between. And time travel enables you to do that. It gives you access to nice sort of circularity and um, things having a meaning later that you've that you've seen earlier. So I, I like it in fiction when you see something and you don't fully understand it until something else is revealed later and you go back and think, oh, that's what that meant. So time travel allows you to do that. And where would I go if I could time travel? Honestly, anywhere in the past would be great, but I think really if I could travel anywhere, it would be to the future because I, I can't know the future. You know, there's an absolute limit to what I could know. And I'm really curious about where we would be in 100 years or 500 years if we're sort of, if we're going to flourish or, you know, deteriorate. And your view on that, I suppose, will vary. Um, but it'd be fascinating to see, you know, if we do end up in a fabulous sci-fi sort of world of intergalactic travel and lightsabers and all that kind of stuff, or if we would just continue as we are with social media and, you know, economies and all that kind of dreary stuff. So yeah, to the future would be great if it was possible. I feel like we'd end up like, what, what is it, uh, the Jules Verne's, we, we're just uh, going to become Morlocks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, we will, we will deteriorate rather than continue to evolve, yes. <laughs> kind of expanding on, on that little talk, when you're writing time travel or, or magic systems into a world, do you set yourself any kind of rules going in? So I've not done a lot of magic. I don't write a lot of fantasy. So, uh, and the Book of Doors is not heavy on magic systems. It's quite a straightforward concept. I, I did have to establish some rules about the books and how they are used. And I kind of just did that as I went along to make sure it had an internal logic. The time travel, it needs to be sensible with, within its own sort of logic. You can't break your own rules. You have to set it up and be honest to the rules you set up. And there's there's a few sections in in the Book of Doors which really kind of serve the purpose of describing the time travel model that I'm using. And and those were actually added in 
at the request of my editor in the UK who wanted more of it. He said, no, tell us more about all of this. So it describes the sort of model of time travel that I use in, in the book, which is it's not the sort of model of time travel you'd see in a Back to the Future where you can go into the past and you change things and it ripples forward. This is that model where uh, it's closed. So everything you do in the past has already happened. So it would create where you are in the future anyway. Even explaining that hurts my head, I understand. But, but yeah, so you, as long as you're following your own rules, I don't think it matters what your rules are. As long as it's, as it's internally logical and you're honest to the rules you've set up and you don't cheat people by saying these are the rules and then you break the rules at the end. I think you have to you have to see the rules through and 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 yes, I needed some rules about time travel to to act as a framework around the story. What got you started as a your your interest in writing? I guess I was no never much of a reader as a child. I mean, I read the stuff that we were told to read by school teachers, and it wasn't until I was about maybe even fourteen or fifteen when one of my friends at school said, "You should read the Stephen King thing called Christine, which is about a haunted car." which sounded preposterous, but it totally um, sucked me in. And I think reading that made me understand how good books could be. And I think looking back, I recognized that I was always a bit of a storyteller, even when I wasn't a reader or a writer. I would always daydream and imagine things. And and years later, I, I uncovered a report card from one of my first years in primary school, which is, you know, when you're very young in the UK. And one of my teachers said, oh, very good at creative writing because um, we'd been doing poems and things like that. And I had no memory of this at all, but obviously there was something there at the time. So I, I think I had some sort of an aptitude. And then it was the Stephen King thing, sucked me into books. So I spent 10 years trying to write subpar Stephen King knockoffs. And then I broadened my reading taste and realized that there are other subjects out there that you could read in, and there are other books that are just as good. And I think in reality, what I discovered is as much as I enjoy horror, I really enjoyed Stephen King as a writer because of his ability as a writer. So he, I, I like good writers rather than I just like horror. And there are other good writers in other genres as well. So and then I've been writing ever since. I, I, I took a job 20 plus years ago to pay the bills until I became rich and famous as an author, as one does. And I knew I would be rich and famous by 26 because Stephen King had done it and I was just as good as him, wasn't I? So there was a bit of sort of naivety and arrogance there. Um, and I'm not as good as Stephen King, I know that. But um, but 20 plus years later, I've finally managed to, to be published, which is great. Uh, and I don't think I ever really lost the faith that I would publish something one day. But uh, my ability to write sort of ebbed and flowed with work pressures and other things it was always there in the back of my mind as something that i wanted to do and the book of doors is hard to lock into one genre and knowing that you're a stephen king fan there is a little element of horror in there and there's also the thriller aspect a little bit of like time travel sci-fi fantasy because of that how do you feel about genres and do you have a preference or do you prefer not to label I think that reflects all the things I read. So you're right, there's definitely horror in there. In fact, one of the one of the US publishers that was interested in it felt it was a bit too much horror in it and they wanted a bit less. Um, whereas my UK publisher wanted more, 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 more horror. And I know some of the early readers have struggled with uh, you know, the sort of cozy opening with some quite dark horror scenes later on. But I think you need the dark to make the light shine a bit brighter. So I, I don't mind that. But yes, I, I love probably the things I read more than anything else now are sort of commercial thrillers. Michael Connolly's or Lee Childs or um, Greg Isles, all these great sort of thriller writers who can really make you keep reading. Um, I read fantasy, I read sci-fi, although not not enough of either, probably. I've always read lots of horror. Um, I read classics. I study literature at university. So um, I read anything that's good and um, I would try anything. I've not read romance. I've not read Westerns, but I would. I don't have like a prejudice against them. I've just never gravitated towards them. So, and I like having all of that in one story. I don't think stories need to be limited by, I know, I know marketing likes to put things in boxes, but I think good stories have bits of everything in them. So, so yeah, I, I hope people can take different things from it. I hope it's compelling. 
it's a little bit scary it's a little bit exciting uh, and there's some fun sort of sci-fi fantasy stuff in it as well it's such a fun read thank you so much i'm glad you liked it this story it comes from multiple perspectives here do you enjoy writing the protagonist or the antagonist more depends on the character and i like i like having multiple points of view probably because i've got a short attention span and if i get stuck i'll go i'll go to another character and make work out what they're doing but i like I just like fun characters. So in this book, Izzy, who's the friend of the main character, I enjoyed writing because she's quite a warm, sort of bubbly person with a sense of humor. I liked, so there's one of the villains, Hugo Barbary, who's essentially quite an exaggerated comic book villain, you know, almost moustache twirlingly evil. I quite enjoyed writing him because you got to be just evil. And then other characters who I didn't start off enjoying, but I enjoyed the journey of discovering and understanding them. So the woman is a prime example who's the main villain or the most evil villain. I really struggled with who she was at the start. And I knew I needed a thing in this space in the book to do stuff. And and I started writing it and I, it wasn't right. And when I worked out that she was a character who was essentially silent, she said very little. And in the original draft, she said nothing, but I had to put a little bit in for plot purposes. That sort of explained it to me. That helped me understood what she was. She's almost like a, a force of nature that sort of sweeps in like a storm and just destroys things. Learning about that as as who the character is, that that's what I enjoy. Whereas the Izzy's and the and the very defined, easily understood characters are just fun to write because you know who they are and they've got their own voice and they sort of run with it for you. And when writing multiple characters, how do you get in different headspaces? Is there anything that like helps you be like, okay, now I'm this person and I need to kind of think like this? Some of that is instinctive. I don't know if I can explain it. Some of it is... I find sometimes if I'm struggling with a character, I need to find a way of thinking about them of of who they are that sort of opens the door for me. So as I said, the woman, just that idea that she didn't say very much. And I wrote the first scene of her where she's horrible to a person and she said very little, but was hugely intimidating. That sort of clarified who she was in my head. Um, Another book I've written where I couldn't work out who a particular character was. And then out of nowhere, it just occurred to me, they're like a stray dog. You know, they're, they're alone and they're lonely. And they've been hit one too many times. And so they're just that sort of idea suddenly just pops into existence. And I go, ah, I've got it now. And sometimes you have that from the outset. Some characters are just there waiting to be picked up by the bus, so to speak. And other characters, you have to really work out to, to understand who they are. So that journey of working out who they are, and often that's driven by, I need something to happen in the plot here, or I need this thing to happen. You know, it's often a mechanistic thing that helps you work out who the characters are. Where are other characters? They're just, they're there in your head waiting to speak. One of those characters is as the librarian. We all know librarians are amazing. I mean, naturally. And this book kind of feels like a love letter to books in general. What went into develop Drummond? So I would like to tell you that obviously Drummond is a very dashing, handsome Scotsman. So he's entirely based on me, but sadly, that's not true. I am one third of those three things and I am definitely Scottish. There's a bit of a device thing about Drummond. So you have Cassie as this person who falls into this hidden world and she gets this book and she knows nothing about it. And you almost have... You then need to have the, the the sort of the wise person, the Mr. Miyagi, the the Obi-Wan Kenobi who comes along and sort of is your guide in this world. So I needed that sort of person in the plot to open the doors for her and explain things. The thing I struggled most with Drummond actually is knowing that I needed that. I, I really struggled to understand what his motivation was initially when I was writing this. Um, and I had this whole other plot for maybe three quarters of the process it took to write the book where Drummond had a completely different motivation about something entirely unrelated to what's in the book just now. And I, I had no idea of his library and the hidden library. And I was really struggling with it because it just wasn't making sense. And then I was walking the dog one day and I just this idea of his library being hidden and it had to be hidden away for keepsake. And he's essentially trying to get back to it. That sort of suddenly appeared in my mind as that connects to things that I've already written that I didn't know would connect to this. And 
suddenly you see the puzzle you've been trying to complete and you didn't know that was a puzzle you were trying to complete. So giving him that motivation that he essentially wants to get home. He's, you know, he sacrificed his home for safety for, for a variety of reasons and he wants to get home. And then that, that gives him a reason to engage with, with Cassie rather than just being the sort of Mr. Miyagi who comes in and answers all the questions. He's got his own motivation as well. So that, that really helped. Um, and, uh, I don't like whiskey. He loves whiskey, so that's nothing like me. But I do love cakes and pastries, and that that came from me definitely. His his diet, other than alcohol, came from me absolutely. And the book of doors heavily relies on being able to convey what's happening in the scene visually, and everything kind of becomes three dimensional in my mind as a reader. And I don't always experience that. So, how do you approach writing visually? It's really interesting. I've seen some of the the early reviews say something similar. You know, it's very visual, and I think that's because I don't think I'm very good at it. So I I almost feel like I overcompensate. Um, so some of it naturally comes from particularly the travel scenes. Me remembering places I've been and trying to capture the the mood. So I spend a bit more time in that. And actually, my agent and editor would push me to do a bit more. Like when Cassie's in Venice, you know, more of this, more of that, and let us feel it a bit more. So they were asking for a bit of it, but where it comes from me is I, I probably don't think I'm very good at that sort of writing. So I, I spend more time in it almost and I almost overemphasize it. So if it works, that's great. But um, I think maybe I think quite visually as well. I imagine when I'm trying to think of scenes and describe scenes, I do have very strong visual ideas about it. And I was always, before I was reading, I was always consuming films and TV. So, I, I, you know, that was my first consumption of stories was through, I wanted to be a film director before I was a wanting to be a novelist so that that's probably where it comes from is a very visual mode of, of storytelling initially and just feeling an imposter and having to do a really good job of the describing so put lots of energy into it maybe too much energy i appreciated that and it felt like i was almost inside of the book as well that's great do, do you see this as a one-off or are we going to see more in this universe oh huh, that's a question isn't it it, um, it is so the book definitely leaves itself open to a sequel the deal I have or the contract I have with the UK and the US who are different publishers is for a two book contract. Um, and interestingly, when we were having the discussions about book two, one publisher wanted a sequel, a direct sequel, and the other didn't. I won't tell you which way around it was. Although the, the publisher that didn't want a direct sequel was not saying we'd never want a direct sequel. They were just saying, don't make it your second book. We can come back mm -hmm. to this in your third or fourth book if you've got a career that long. But if you do a second book, you'll just be pigeonholed as a, as a series writer sort of thing. So there is definitely a potential for a second book. And I definitely have ideas of what would happen. There are definitely other books out there in this universe to be discovered. Whether or not it is the second book that comes out from me remains to be seen. Well, stay tuned. Stay tuned. <laughs> And was there anything in particular that inspired uh, having a physical object kind of be the key to have any door be every door? The actual, the object came before anything else. So I'd had this idea of a book of doors for quite a long time. And my original conception was actually a book that had drawings of every door in the universe. And you would like point to the door and I want to go to that door, which obviously didn't work. But I'd originally conceived it as a sort of a device for a fantasy story. And I had sort of worked out this sort of fantasy world, but I don't read enough fantasy to really feel I could be credible writing a fantasy novel. So I'd never done anything with it really, just sort of sat there in my back of my mind. And it was during COVID when I'd, I'd written that first book and it sold and I was pitching ideas to my agent. And I said, well, I've got this idea for a book of doors and I haven't been able to go anywhere during COVID. So I just I was imagining if I had the book in this real world, could I open my door and go? So maybe I could write something about having a book like this in the real world. And my agent was like, well, that's the one, write that one, because people love books about books. So it was that device originally. And then I suppose once you've got one magical book, it kind of leads naturally to are there other magical books? So where do they come from? And it kind of all wrote itself. But the book was there. The device of A Book of Doors was there before this novel was even, you know, uh, embryonic in my mind. <laughs> 
So we did have a conversation earlier on Unstacked with E. Schwab about differences in fantasy authors, which I thought was fascinating. And so she kind of paired it with the J.R.R. Tolkien's and the C.S. Lewis's. You kind of have that more C.S. Lewis approach where that the Book of Doors is very much grounded in the real world. And then there's that portal into something other. What are your thoughts about fantasy being in an entirely new world versus grounded in that new world where, where something magical could be just around the corner? So I think there's room for both. And I, and I should say, again, I, I don't read a lot of fantasy, so I'm not an expert mm-hmm. in fantasy. I've actually read more in the last few years than I have for a while because my agent represents a lot of fantasy authors. But I, I think when I came to this, I like the the grounded in the real world because that makes it more accessible for people, I think. And there's something about science fiction as well. I like science fiction, but science fiction, I know, is a barrier to a lot of people because even some of the science, fi- science fiction books I love, you immediately have to sort of digest words and concepts and types of spaceship and all that kind of stuff, which just makes it hard. So I like something that starts in a familiar place and maybe takes you somewhere else. And it also, and maybe this is the lazy me talking, it just saves you a lot of work as well because you don't have to describe magical systems or work them out. You don't have to describe what type of person this is, what kind of staff they have. And it's all familiar. So it's a much more accessible for people. And and I'll be honest, there was a there was a commercial, I suppose, aspect to my thinking as well in that a book that that could be commercial in the sense that it's not a genre, not that I don't like genre, I love genre, but a book that would allow people, invite people in who wouldn't normally read fantasy, I think is a good thing. I, I assumed it would be more appealing to both publishers and, and the market, which it's proven to be. So all of those things are, are factors, I think, but I absolutely think there's a, a place for, you know, swords and dragons and high fantasy and grimdark fantasy and all these things. Um, and I know romanticy, romance fantasy is the big thing at the moment the space for all of that and i think as long as there's diversity in publishing as long as there's space for everything and not one thing dominates the other things which is always a risk when publishers are following trends then that's great for people who have diverse interests and i would read it all when you're talking about that language that comes with certain things i just started reading um charles strass's uh the laundry files oh yeah yeah and just trying to because i'm not a computer engineer by any mm. any trick so just the, the language that he uses trying to explain that magic system and and, and uh, yeah it's it's gets overwhelming real quick yeah i i mean I, there's some one of my favorite books of all time is hyperion by dan simmons which is just this amazing science fiction it's sort of a, a canterbury tales thing where there's six or seven people going on a journey together and they each tell your, their story and each story is in a slightly different style and it's got these amazing ideas in it but the first maybe 20 25 pages it's just really hard sort of hard sci-fi you know, spaceships and this device and that device. And it, and it, and it put me off um, and I had to work to get through it. And then it just opens up like this beautiful flower with all these things in it. So, I mean, I, I know people have time pressure and short attention spans and the tyranny of life is really hard. So I want to make it as easy as possible for people to get into a book. Um, not everybody has the ability to really work hard to get the reward that many of these books would offer you. So kind of bouncing that taking that where the, the Charles Strauss idea here, and I know you've been in civil servants. Is it as bad as he makes it out to be? So the UK civil service is, I think, a fabulous place. Maybe I'm still institutionalized. I don't know, but it's a place, or it was. I mean, it's, it's sort of being degraded now by political sort of pressure, but it was a place where usually very clever, well-meaning people would go and consider very difficult problems and provide advice to political masters about how to deal with it. It's, it's a place that demands good writing skills which always appealed to me maybe it it demands a bit of creative truth telling or fiction even sometimes but i I worked in civil service 20 years in fact i'm still employed technically by the civil service and i i didn't meet a bad person in my whole time there 
people in the UK, people go into the civil service, not for reward, but to do the right thing. And it's full of, you know, people with PhDs in philosophy and microbiology and lawyers and all these amazing sort of highly accomplished people who who come into the service to try and work on really tricky problems. So it's, it's a really stimulating place to be full of brilliant people. Here in America, I'm not sure how how far this is translated over there. We are dealing with a lot of books being challenged. And, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. Um, so your story is based about the finding magic inside books. Um, do you think that fiction like what you're writing can help improve those kind of challenges or everyday life? I, I think reading anything is good. You know, as soon as you start reading, it's, it's to your benefit, even if you're reading something that's not good, because it forces you to think, it forces your brain to work, to imagine, to, you know, engage with the ideas that are presented in front of you. So um, I, I've never been of the view that certain books are better than other books. I studied literature at university and some of the, the classics I read, I, I really struggled with, whereas, you know, I've read most of Dean Kuntz's books and I love them. So, um, you know, and people would say, well, that's that's rubbish, but it's not. I think people can be a bit sniffy about books. I, I think let people read whatever they want. You know, within reason, you know, there's some things obviously, but particularly children. But as soon as you get into a space of removing things for political reasons, removing things for ideological reasons, I think as soon as you're removing books, you're trying to deny ideas from people and people should be able to consume ideas. So all books are good. And in some ways, the Book of Doors deals with what it means just to be alive in this world and our human connections and the power of human connection. So can you delve a little deeper into that? Yeah, it's interesting because the thing I probably thought would be hardest when I was writing The Book of Doors was some of the emotional stuff, the connection between Cassie and her grandfather, which is an important strand. And there's a few scenes where Cassie's talking to her grandfather, and I won't explain, but if you've read the book, you'll understand what I mean. And I was really nervous about writing those because it deals with these weird things called feelings. You know, I'm Scottish. I have the emotional range of a stone, so having to contemplate emotions is very troubling to me. And so I really doubted, I actually doubted whether I could do it justice or not. And, and I, I kind of just got in my head and I just wrote it like what, what would happen in these scenes if I was in the scenes. And I think maybe I was just getting in my way a little bit. And I do understand feelings really if I, if I think about it and allow myself to have feelings. Um, but I think sort of to your point more generally, it's all very well having magical books and having good times. But the human experience is really what it's all about. And I think people engage with the characters. And, and some of the feedback I've seen from people who've loved the book is, that human connection between Cassie and I suppose her grief and her grandfather and what she's able to do, the things she's able to do about her own feelings about what's happened to her in the past. People are sort of connecting with that. And I've seen people talk about they have their own sort of baggage that's similar to Cassie's and it, and it allows them to connect with that. So I suppose in a sense, that's that's the magic of a book in the real world is it allows you to tap into things that you otherwise are not thinking about or don't want to think about. And it gives you a maybe a release valve or a way to connect with things that make you happy or make you sad for the best reasons. So I'm glad it's worked for people. And I hope it, I hope other people read it, find it. But um, I'm probably most proud of that. And indeed, I'm sorry if I'm going on too long about this, but I didn't know what was going to be in the book. I, I knew the first scene when I started writing it. I'm not a planner. I just make it up as I go. But the one thing I knew, I had two scenes when I sat down to write this that I knew I wanted to be in it. One was the opening scene when Cassie comes into possession of the book. And the other scene I know I wanted to happen was the scene that's near the very end where Cassie does something with the Book of Joy. And I knew I wanted a Book of Joy for that reason, for the scene. Those were the two things I knew I wanted. So I, it, almost the first things that came to me when I was thinking about the book, despite my professing to have no emotions, was that very emotional moment that Cassie has with the Book of Joy. So so I suppose that's the truth of the story. That's where it came from, that that idea of what Cassie does. I'm being, oh, very, and... cryptic. I'm being very cryptic for people who haven't read it. But when you read it, you'll understand. 
Yeah, I think everyone needs to pick it up. And it is just a beautiful approach on um, on family and even harder subjects like death and um, healing, grief. Uh, so we like to have a little bit of fun here. And we, we, we've got a game that we call it Kiss, Mary Ditch. You might know it as something different. Yeah, I know it with different <laughs> quality of words, as you can imagine. Sarah won't let me say those words. Yeah. So I've got three categories here that I'm going to make you choose from. Inside those chat categories, there are going to be three items, one that you will like, one that you will love, and one that you will get rid of. Uh, so I'm going to make you choose one of these categories, and then we can kind of go from there. Cool. Uh, the ones that you're going to get are Chip Off the Old Block, Huey Lewis sang it best and Fox favorites. Can I do all three of them? Are we allowed to do all Why three not? Of them? Sure, let's do this. We're librarians. We're like, you know, we like to consider ourselves to be deep researchers. And I, in this part, happen to see some photos that you posted way back in the in, in a while that uh, were about flavored crisps that you saw overseas. And I got to know. Uh, mm. Hot chili squid, salted egg, or cucumber? Yeah, so my wife is from Malaysia originally, and they have some interesting flavors of crisps over there. What were the categories again? Because I'm scared I'll, I'll lapse into my less less polite words for them. Uh, it's kiss, Mary ditch, but you can say whatever. Kiss, Mary, you don't ditch. have the same restri restrictions put on you that Sarah puts on me. Okay, um, no, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be polite. Kiss, Mary ditch. So I would definitely marry salted egg. Um, now, salted egg is a thing that I I had no conception of, and my wife made me try it and it's the best thing it's hard to describe it but it's like savory and slightly sweet so salted egg um and the one of the things i had in malaysia that was lovely was a salted egg stuffed croissant so it was almost like a sweet custard with salted egg flavor in it it sounds horrible but it's honestly if you get a chance to try salted egg try it and then kiss and ditch what were the other two flavors i'd probably kiss cucumber um because it's an inoffensive you know you're not going to get hot chili squid in your mouth by kissing cucumber are you and then i would probably <laughs> ditch hot chili squid not I, I don't mind squid i quite like squid but um i don't like the flavor of chili i like spicy food but chili itself is not a flavor i enjoy so i would ditch the hot chili give it to my wife because she she lives on chili so how squiddy was the hot, hot chili squid chip not really i don't know if you have them over there but in the uk we have a flavor of crisps called prawn cocktail which doesn't really taste like prawns at all it tastes more like um the sauce that you would have on a prawn cocktail so these tasted like chili with maybe a very slight note of something fish saucy in the background box favorites we're going to make you choose some of uh drumming the box's favorites here whiskeys pastries or books oh well i would uh ditch the whiskey sorry to my um you know whiskey industry um compatriots but i hate whiskey i just I hate, I mean, I don't drink alcohol at all, which is unusual for a Scotsman. I don't, I've never really got used to the taste of alcohol, but spirits are just the worst. It's like drinking petrol or something or, you know, gasoline. It's, it's awful. So I would ditch that, no doubt. Um, I've always liked the branding of whiskey more than I've liked drinking it. I'd love, I'd love to like whiskey just to sit in a room with a glass of, you know, really nice stuff. But no, I don't like it. I would kiss the pastry because why wouldn't you? Because that's very unctuous and delicious, isn't it? It's, smother it all over your mouth. Sorry, that's, that's getting a bit private there. And then definitely marry books because books would keep you company for the rest of your life i've always thought that scotch um smells like band-aids <laughs> yes it's got that very sort of medicinal <laughs> and i've tried so much and particularly when i was at university you know everybody was pouring alcohol down my neck try it try it and oh you'll like this one and nope don't like it never liked it it's, it's one of those things where i like the idea of alcohol there's certain ones mm. that i enjoy 
but I like the idea of it more than the practicality. So I'm always in trouble with, with the misses here where I'm like, Oh yeah, let's get this because it just sounds awesome. Yeah. And then it's like, eh, but I don't really drink. I pretend to drink more yeah. than anything. I get, I, I like, it's like whiskey. I like the world of, you know, bottles with lovely labels on them and wine, you know, vineyards and all that sort of paraphernalia and drinking, but it just tastes horrible. That's the problem. It's a bit of a barrier, I suppose. <laughs> It's it's Stockholm syndrome. You you do it enough, you'll you'll like it. Yeah, that's what they say. If you keep trying, it's like TV shows where they tell you it gets really good in the third season. It's like, well, I don't want to watch two seasons of rubbish to get to the good third. Make it good from the start. There you go. And finally, we had Huey Lewis sang at best. Obviously, Huey Lewis sang all about time travel for Back to the Future. So we're gonna make you choose some time travel shows here: Life on Mars, Quantum Leap, or The Dark. Dark, as in the German one. Yeah, the German suit. So I've seen them all, which is good. I watched Dark for the first time a year or so ago. I know it's it's amazing. It's um particularly the it, it goes off the rails a little bit. I thought at the end, but the first couple of seasons, I mean, it's just fabulous use of time travel. Um, and it's so atmospheric and eerie. So I would probably would I marry that? I think that'd be quite a hard marriage because it's it's a mind bending sort of show. I would maybe it would not be the healthiest marriage. It wouldn't. It would screw your mind up absolutely. I would probably. Oh, this is hard. I mean, I think I would probably marry Quantum Leap because that's happy. That's got a good message. It's entertaining. Um, very sort of folksy, warm. That's a good thing to marry. Um, what would I kiss? Life on Mars is a bit grimy. Oh, I don't know. This is hard. I would probably kiss dark just out of sheer respect it's like looking at a really beautiful but unattainable thing i could never live with it because it's it's better than me but i would kiss it out of you know pure enjoyment and its beauty and then i would i would sadly ditch life on mars but i do like life on mars it's a good it's a good program i I don't know if i ever got to see the the bbc version of it we had it translated over here oh life oh so you were talking about the us version no no, i'm I'm talking i've but i when i'm talking about i'm definitely talking about the bbc one just Ah, because i've because I knew that would probably be one that you were more familiar with here. But so I'm, I'm curious to see how much change it went between them. Who was in the U.S. one? I wasn't even aware. That, I don't think I was aware there was a U.S. one. Uh, give me a second, because that's it has been probably 10 plus years. So let's did see it, was can... it successful or did they just do it one, one season? One season is what yeah. I remember. Some of those translations don't really, well, a lot of those translations don't really work both ways, in fact. While we're talking about that, I, Bottom Leap is always going to be my marriage just because Anytime you you get Sam when he is you know dealing mm. with his family drama, it's like onions and dust oh, all in my eyes, and it's just it's that... such a such a good concept as well. Such a you know take somebody and put them in all these different places and times, and you get to. I remember it's been a while since I watched it, but they were really good at exploring sort of social issues through that sort of lens of quantum leap, um, racism, and disabilities. It was such a good program. Jason O'Mara is who who was the main character in, in this one. Don't recognize the name. Uh, he was in, let's see what we can put him in here for you. Like, he's most recently been in Unicorn Eternal Warriors. That doesn't help us. Midnight Club. <laughs> he's the he's the pale man. Um, no, don't know him. But I'm sure I'm sure it was a very good program, but probably not as good as the original. If you did Agents of Shield, he's Patriot. I haven't seen Agents of Shield either. Sadly. Yeah, so. No, we can I would Google definitely, it later. Yeah, I'll definitely ditch Life on Mars, sadly. With right. regret. Well done for not just going to Doctor Who, which would made it impossible as the obvious time travel show. I'm not gonna lie. At one point, that was on there. I, you know, I was I was debating Doctor Who and Outlander out there just because of. I haven't seen it, but I would ditch Outlander just on principle. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was like, you know what? When you get down to the heart of a good time travel story, there there's certain ones that stand out mm. that that are more 
engaged. Yeah. Doctor Who's great, but it's a different type of time yeah. travel. It's not really about time travel. Mostly, some of the episodes are, but mostly it's just a kid's show with monsters. But yeah, those those three that you picked are definitely better time travel programs. And you mentioned that Lee Child was one of your favorite thriller authors, and he actually did a blurb for The Book of Doors. And his blurb was, a stunning fever dream of a story that feels completely real. Don't miss this fantastic thriller debut. What was that experience like? That was probably the first proper pinch me moment. Um, I mean, I've been really lucky to get quite a lot of blurbs from really good authors, authors that I read and liked. But um I've probably read more Lee Child than I have of any of the other authors that I've blurbed. He's one of the few authors that I've read, I've reread books of his. And I came to him quite late. It was maybe only about eight or nine years ago that I started reading him. And I think, I actually think he's probably the natural inheritor of Ian Fleming in terms of having a consistent character and just putting them into sort of similar but changing situations. And I know his style, some people don't like his style. And, and sometimes his style is hard to read, but there's something so compelling about the sort of character and the, the dynamic situations that he puts them in. And so I love, I love Lee Child for what he does as a sort of, as a commercial writer that forces people to read. And of course he's hugely successful. So to have him have read it, uh, to send a message saying how much he liked it and to give a blurb, it's, it's frankly still unbelievable. Uh, I struggle to conceive of him sitting in his mansion in New York, wherever he is, or one of his, I heard him on a podcast once saying, and it made me like him even more, but he said, I have a disgusting number of houses. So whichever of his houses he was sitting in reading it, um, I, I struggle to conceive of him sitting there sort of nodding as he as he read my words. So it's, it's lovely. It's, it's more than I could have ever have hoped for. I think we're going to play another game here. I think we're going to play the uh, the favorite game, similar to uh, Cassie and Izzy. Oh, cool. I love, I love games. Your favorite library. Ooh, that's hard. Um, now I don't I don't tend to go to libraries much anymore because as soon as I got enough money to do so I started buying books because I like to buy books to pay authors. Whenever we go on holiday, if there's a if there's a nice library, we'll go and visit it. Um, favorite libraries? There's this is going to be a bit obscure, but there's a a town in Norway called Tromso in the far north of Norway where my wife and I have been a few times, and there's a fabulous public library there that's in this beautiful building huge open space with big windows that look onto these fabulous mountains and fjords and um, that's a brilliant library that's a lovely library i've got a soft spot for the new york public library and um, we've just come back from new york a couple of weeks ago and there's a new it's across the street from the the main public library there's a new um public library building there that they've opened up with i think some charitable money that's got this brilliant viewing platform at the top out over sort of midtown Manhattan. Maybe it's not a library like there. Maybe it's the, the viewing platform, but I'll say I like that library. And then I probably have to give a nod to the library that I spent a lot of time in when I was growing up. So I grew up in a small town called Bones, which is near Edinburgh in Scotland. And there's a, a, a library in a, an old, like it must be like an 18th century building. It was small, but cozy and perfect. And I would just go in on weekends. I would walk down the town by myself and go and sit in the library for hours and read books. And that was a really cozy, comfortable, welcoming just local public library. So I would probably say that one as well, just for nostalgia. I think if I did the New York library, I'd, I'd have my Ghostbuster moment and want to have to yell out, yeah. get them. Yeah, it's such a nice, and I love Bryant Park behind the public library as well. It's just, that's just that part of New York. Maybe I'm too much of a tourist about it, but that part of New York is just is just lovely as a tourist. Not I wouldn't want to live there. It'd be a nightmare, I'm sure, but as a tourist, it's lovely. And tell me about your favorite book. Does anybody ever answer that question with one book? Um, I've got lots of favorite books. I mentioned one earlier, Hyperion by Dan Simmons, which is just amazing, full of brilliant ideas. It's one of the few books I've read more than once. 
Uh, I would probably say, oh, I'm struggling now. There's a book called uh, uh, A Boy's Life by Robert R. McCammon, who's a, a US writer. He, I think he was sort of in the wake of Stephen King in the sort of 80s as a sort of horror writer, but he sort of diversified now into other things. But he did this lovely book about a boy growing up in Alabama and him and his father, I think, discover a dead body. And it's all these sort of secrets being revealed. And it's a real sort of coming of age story, um, sort of full of like nostalgia and, um, you know, as an adult looking back to that sort of sort of time as a child when everything was better and instant that's that's a beautiful book uh, i would probably say i love sort of really compelling thrillers so something like um red dragon by thomas harris which i think is i mean i don't know why anybody bothered writing fbi hunting the serial killer sort of stories after thomas harris had done certainly red dragon and silence of the lambs those are fabulous books I like Michael Conley books, Concrete Blonde, which is one of his early books, is, is a brilliant sort of police procedural book. Tell me to stop if you've had enough. Um, and then Stephen King, maybe Pet Cemetery, which is his properly scariest book, I think, and one of his slimmer books. He was better when he was slimmer, I think. His, his longer books are always fun to read, but like there's very early stuff like Dead Zone and Pet Cemetery and Cujo, which are really sort of gripping sort of thriller, horror sort of books are probably his best stuff. So yeah, all of those, any and all of those, plus many more. Favorite villain? Ooh, favorite villain, and and is this fiction, literature, films, I, any of these? Any any of those ones? Villains are hard. I think villains are often easy to get wrong because you can have cackling, tell you know, I'm going to tell you my plans, sort of villains, which are never real, and that's something I was trying not to do with the women. I didn't want her to be cackling and telling people their story, her her plans. So I think the consummate villain is probably Darth Vader, and maybe that's a bit of a cliche to say that, but he's a fabulous villain. And your favorite place to write? The truth is, I write anywhere. Because I work full-time, I kind of just have to write whenever I can. So most of the time, I'll write here. I mean, people in the podcast won't be able to see this, but this is my my study where I work. But The Book of Doors was written on my iPhone in bed sometimes, just before going to sleep with my thumbs and notes. It's been written on the train commuting when I'm going to work and I've got a bit of time. It's been written here at my desk in a lunch break um i even wrote not not book of doors but the book i, I was working on after that we went on a holiday to switzerland and on the flight to switzerland i had my iphone and i was just i got a thousand words done with my thumb so just wherever i can to be honest i don't i don't need i, I have been known to write downstairs in the living room with the tv on the dogs barking uh my wife talking to me i, I don't need you know a special place um it's better if i've got quiet but i can write anyway and for me the first words down don't need to be perfect as long as i get stuff down i can make it better you know just getting stuff down is the harder thing so that sort of just pushing through and getting three thousand words done for a day i'll do it anywhere awesome got a favorite bad movie i've got a bit of a soft spot for i don't well i don't think it's a bad movie but i'll say it and you can see what you think so big trouble in little china the john carpenter classic I literally told my wife over dinner last night that I was asking this question today. And that was her response too. And it almost started a fight right there in the restaurant because I'm like, this is not a bad movie, darn it. This is one of the greatest movies ever made. I, I think I, I I found a soulmate then, I think. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it was a flop, I think, when it came out. Um, it was the first movie I ever bought on VHS. For those of you who are old enough to remember what a VHS tape is, it was the first movie I bought on DVD. Not not by plan, just it happened to be the case. Uh, and then it came out in a special edition and I bought that as well. And, and I don't know why I like it because it's kind of, it's kind of rubbish and stupid, but it's a really nice idea where it's like an action movie seen from the perspective of the sidekick who doesn't realize he's a sidekick. So Kurt Russell plays this brilliant, stupid, 
you know, a trucker guy who thinks he's the action hero, whereas the real hero is his Chinese friend and um, he doesn't release his psychic. So the, the conceit is brilliant um, and it's full of, you know, rubbish 80s set design and, you know, lovely electronic music that John Carpenter does. It's it's So I, I would defend Big Trouble in Little China. I also have a bit of a soft spot for the first Charlie's Angels movie which is not a good film by any means. It has none of the redeeming features of Big Trouble in Little China. But I did walk out of the cinema halfway through the second Charlie's Angel movie. So there was a huge big nosedive in standard there. And your favorite holiday? Do you mean the favorite holiday I've had in the past or the place I like to go? Place you like to go. Place I like to go. Um, so you might you might have detected this from Book of Doors. I love cities. Um, so I'm blessed in Scotland that we've got lovely countryside and my wife and I do a lot of trips up north. And and we do go hill walking and stuff. But I I... I've got a short attention span and when I'm looking at the same mountain for six hours, I'm like, it's the same mountain. There's nothing else to see. Whereas in a city, you can walk for hours and see something different every 30 seconds. So I love going to big cities. I love New York probably because it's easy to get to and there's no language barrier, which just makes it easier. Um, I love Tokyo um, and I love to go back to Tokyo. Um, I like London. So any big city where I can walk for hours, I can get cakes and tea. um, I can go to bookshops and browse and I can see um, lots of lights and lots of buildings as the day gets dark. That's the sort of place I love. And to, to kind of tie back to what we were just talking a moment ago with the time travel, which doctor? Mm. I would say for me, it's probably Matt Smith. I know a lot of people love David Tennant and I think he's good as well. I think Peter Capaldi was fabulous, but probably the quality of the material wasn't quite as good as with Matt Smith. I think certainly the, the modern series, I think it peaked with Matt Smith and it's sort of been slightly reducing ever since in quality um, for me personally. Um, so I would go Matt Smith. There's something brilliant about Matt Smith. He's just got like a, a very unique face and he's a fabulous actor and he can do seemingly very old in a very young man's body, which is, and he's, he's fabulous in House of Dragon as well. I don't know if you've seen House of Dragon. He's really good in that as well. So I would go for Matt Smith. Big fan. That's my favorite doctor. You are, a, you are a woman of great taste, then, obviously. <laughs> I, I have a controversial opinion of the modern doctors in that I like Christopher Eccleston. I like that grim, dark one that, that had that kind of more edgy horror feel to it. I, I love Christopher Eccleston. Well, I, I, I'm a big fan of Christopher Eccleston as an actor, and I don't think it would have, I don't think Doctor Who would have come back as successfully had it not been for him in the role as a sort of a name. The thing I struggled with with Christopher Eccleston is I don't think he was as good at the lighter stuff. So Doctor no, Who no. needs a bit of the silliness. I think he was less, but he was great at the dark stuff and the serious stuff. And there were some fabulous episodes in that first series, but I would go for Matt Smith or David Tennant or even Peter Capaldi was probably better at the sillier stuff than Christopher Eccleston. I am excited about the new Doctor. I'm looking forward yeah. to the new Doctor. Yeah, I'm always excited. I mean, I liked, I love Jodie Whittaker and I thought it was great that they cast her and cast a woman. I just didn't think the material was as good. I don't think the, the content yeah. was as good. And I, I was a big fan of Stephen Moffat as the writer. I know some people find him too complicated, but um, I loved his stuff. And obviously, Russell T. Davis is back now. I think Shuti will be really interesting. He's really charismatic. Um, and obviously, they've got the that sweet, sweet Disney money now, which is part of this sort of deal. So maybe some of the um, the, the effects and the, the budget will be will be better. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see what it's like. I'll, I'll always give Doctor Who a chance. And I think Doctor Who is a program where I know I will often be disappointed by it. I always remain optimistic that I won't be disappointed by it. If you could spend one day with one of your characters from the Book of Doors, who would it be and why? Well, immediately I'm thinking Drummond Fox in his library in the Highlands with his larder of ice cream and cakes and cups of tea and shortbread and that view of mountains and locks and rooms full of books and a comfortable bed. 
but then I quite like New York, so maybe a day walking around bookshops with Izzy in New York. Yeah, Izzy or Drummond Oti. I just to keep you into my laughing here, I sent a text to my wife telling exactly what the, the big trouble story, and she's like, "See, I told you it was a bad movie. It's great, but it's a bad movie. It's a fabulous movie. Your wife is a wise person." <laughs> One of the things I, I, I saw is that you have some very unique bookmarks for the Book of Doors with, with door hangers. And I, I love that concept. Are, are those available somewhere? Um, yes, that was part. So in the UK, so I'm published in the UK by Transworld, which is part of Penguin. They've really thrown their weight behind it and they've got all these fabulous marketing assets. And one of them, so in, in the UK, they produced hardback advanced reader copies which apparently is almost unheard of these fabulous lovely bound sort of um cloth hardback books and at the same time they produced these door hanging bookmarks which i think was just a a fun whim and um, i'm not aware that you can buy them anywhere um i have three or four of them but they are lovely they also produced for some of the instagram book talk people they produced a box big black box that had the hardback arc in it and it had shortbread it had i think they were trying to go for whiskey but they couldn't get whiskey so they got sort of a, a botanical drink and they had a, a, a like a library card from a library and they had it stamped with a fox library stamp and i won that stamp but i don't have it yet um and they had a candle that had a library smell and so there was this lovely box of things that went to people it's, i mean the amount of money they spent on market in this in the uk it's blown my mind but it's like I say, I'm 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 very spoiled as I'm very lucky, but those bookmarks, yes, are very nice. Maybe I should offer them as a prize or something to people who want them. I'll do a, a Twitter giveaway or something. That would be nice. What are you currently reading slash watching? Reading. I've literally just finished reading The Book Eaters by Sunny Dean. I don't have you had Sunny Dean on this podcast? She we have not. Good. We have not, but I saw that you're doing an interview with her soon. Yeah, Sunny. So Sunny and I are on a Discord and we now share the same agent. So she's with my agent now. Um uh, so I, I felt I had to read her book because she's coming to interview me for the launch, um, and it was fabulous. It was—I mean, I've heard great things about the book eaters, but it, it blew me away. And then the way it plays with ideas of fairy tales and books—I think it's just out in paperback in the US. It's, it's a fabulous book. So definitely, I would recommend that. And watching—we have just finished binge watching all of Kim's Convenience on Netflix, which is that Canadian, which is very good. Um, it kind of sucked me in. I kind of wanted not to like it for some reason, and then I just started loving it. So we watched all of that in about four days. And we've just finished, I don't know why we were on a Korean bent for some reason, but we've just finished watching a series called Kingdom, which is, um, I think it's set in something like 14th century Korea, and it's about zombies, a zombie attack in 14th century Korea. And it's kind of mixed up with Korean politics at the time, you know, the empire politics. So it's a bit sort of Game of Thronesy with history type setting with 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 zombies so um that was good enjoyed that as well and uh i don't know what we're watching next i don't know what's next on the list the ever-growing to be watched list of netflix and amazon programs we kind of use this one to see what might be coming in the future here what's the strangest thing in your search history uh -huh. so um i've heard you do this and i thought i better prepare my answer for that and i was <laughs> i was thinking furiously trying to think what is the strangest thing in my search history and of course half the time you forget what you've searched for but i think one of the things that came to mind was a book i've been writing recently required me to know what the gun laws are and i had a person in the book go to alabama and want to have a gun um so i had to find out how easy is it i, I mean i kind of knew the answer to this but how easy is it to get a gun in alabama and where can you get them and is it a concealed you know carry or not or can you walk around quite happily with it so for a British person, how can I buy a semi-automatic weapon in Alabama? It's maybe a bit of a strange um, search history. And then I suppose other things, 
Um, when I was writing Book of the Doors, I had characters in South America and I've never been to South America. So doing sort of strange, very specific searches on specific streets and places I've never heard of in Chile, that's maybe a very oddly specific search. But I don't think there's anything too incriminating in my search history. I think it's all very above the board. Being based out of Alabama right now, it's it's easy. Oh, you're in <laughs> Alabama, are you? I didn't yes. realize you're in Alabama. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, that's good to know. I got it right then. <laughs> I think buy one, get one free, maybe. Wow. Yes, it does. I mean, I, I'm sure you've you will be aware of this, but it is oddly baffling to me the the gun thing. Um, and I flew into Savannah once, and I remember standing in Savannah Airport and just seeing posters in the departure hall or the arrivals hall for semi-automatic uh, rifles to be bought. I think maybe one of the one of the gun manufacturers was based in Savannah or something. Just that ability to walk into a Walmart and buy like a military grade weapon. It is. I mean, you will know this. It's just bizarre. One of the things I love is if when we are driving back uh, down to to Florida to see Sarah, there's this billboard that we pass, and I keep saying we're going to stop, but it's it's an advertisement where you can drive a tank, fire automatic weapons, and all kinds of stuff. Stop on in. That's crazy. That's crazy. And I know, I know you have this sort of there's this wrestle with this issue in the states. I know it's a live issue, but it's just looking at it from the outside, and particularly because I, I mean, I love the United States. We've had lots of good times, and you know, there's great people, but. It just seems such a cultural black spot that you have this tolerance. And I know where it's come from. I know the history and all that kind of stuff, but um, it's just bizarre. It's just very strange. And we are a library podcast. So how have libraries impacted your life? Yeah, hugely. So as I said earlier, when I was younger, my um, my parents once a week would take us to the local library and we'd got to pick books and take them home. And and I, I was never much of a reader, as I said, but I would always go and look at the comics and um do you guys have asterix and obelix over there is that published in the u.s it's a french sort of comic series about the gauls fighting the romans it's kind of comedy it's very witty very funny but um there's a whole series of them a bit like tintin have you got tintin Mm -hmm. like that sort of thing you know a series of stories and sort of published hardback books and my library had a collection of those and i would go and get those and read those or other comics and uh and then as i got older and obviously started borrowing all the stephen king books and the, the james herbert books and Dean Koontz books, um, I would go down to the library. We had a fabulous horror section. I don't know what that says about small town Scotland, but they had a huge horror section. Um, and my library was really nice. Um, it was it was a time when I think the UK really invested in libraries and it was well-resourced and nice librarians and very welcoming. So it really formulated, I suppose it gave me really, really easy access to a wide variety of books that I wouldn't otherwise have. And then actually one of my first jobs when I worked in the civil service was responsible for libraries policy in Scotland. So getting to see how the National Library worked in Scotland and sponsoring and libraries policy, all that kind of stuff was really rewarding. So I love libraries. And although I hardly ever go to libraries now because I'll go and buy books if I can, I absolutely support the value of them, not just as repositories and temples of books, but as places, I suppose, of community cohesion. It's a place where people come together. I'm, I'm sure that's the case in the US as well. And all these community services are there. It's a place for old people to come if they're cold. That's maybe less of an issue in parts of the US. But in Scotland, if it's cold, you can go in and get warm for a few hours and you can read the newspapers or you can access the internet if you if you don't have access yourself. So they're so, so vital. And it's a travesty in the UK that so many libraries have had to close because of political decisions for other reasons. It's a real, I think the quality of the country suffers when you lose your libraries. I've been noticing that there's more closures in the UK and I was curious, yeah. it's kind of like post pandemic. It's, of... I don't know if it's post pandemic. The problem is we've had a, <laughs> we've had a conservative government in the UK for the last 10 years who had this 14 years, had this austerity drive, which was an entirely political choice. And the consequences of that is a lot of essential services have to be cut because local governments, local authorities just don't have the money. So mm-hmm. there's things that they must do 
like sanitation and you know schools and there's things that are nice to do that they they don't have to do and if the the budgets are cut then libraries the, the one good thing is so people always protest library closures because they're valued so mm -hmm. it's, it's a difficult decision to make but um sometimes there's just not enough money i'm always worried about the united states and and that mm. too because there is always limited funds so as we kind of wrap up here, I've got one personal question and then then our official wrap-up question. My youngest gets obsessed with cultures. He went through a French phase, but right now he's going through a Scottish phase because he found out there's some Scottish on my wife's side. He advised to, to Scotland. So you're telling me both your wife and your son have impeccable taste in films and cultures. I would say, what would I say about Scotland? I would say, well, Scotland pretty much invented most of the modern inventions in the world. You might not know that. That's not really a life hack. It's just one of these things to recognize. Um, we pretty much invented the modern world. Uh, other people might dispute that, but it's true. I would say Scotland is much more than beautiful hills and castles. Um, there's really vibrant modern cities, culture, broadcasting, you know, literature. It's more than whiskey and shortbread, great comedy great actors films you know um he should come when he's old enough to do so he should come and experience it for himself everybody's very welcoming and um, as long as you don't take yourself too seriously um you will be very welcome in scotland edinburgh yeah. is my favorite place to visit and i'd love to oh, go have back you been? have <laughs> you been yeah it's... it's been a while and it was not long enough but it was wonderful yeah it's a great place i mean it's a very it's a very pretty city for reasons that it's obviously very historic in the center and in the 70s, they made decisions to put all the modern roads around the outside so it's not been disrupted in the way some other cities have and it's retained its sort of um, its oldie worldly feel. Um, and it's a very inspiring place. You know, lots of great writers have come from or been based in, in Edinburgh, Robert Louis Stevenson and Arthur Conan Doyle and obviously J.K. Rowling more recently. So it's, it is a very pretty and inspiring place. Hard to afford a house in Edinburgh, so that's what I'll say. So as we do officially wrap up here, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners? Please buy my book. I have a, an awful um, addiction to um, cakes and, and biscuits or cookies, as you would call it. And I need more money to afford all the sweet treats. So um, I also need money to pay for my dog's very expensive dog food. So to throw myself on your uh, listeners' uh, good nature, please buy my book. No, seriously, um, please buy the book if, you, if you're interested in anything like that. Or if not my book, just buy a book. Buy any book or borrow a book from a library. Books are your friends and they will stay with you for life. So go and be more bookish. Uh, I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you are bookish, but um, do it more. Double your bookishness. Well, we are so glad to have you on Unstacked. This is, your book was such a joy to read. Yes. And um, very we, kind. we really liked having you on chatting. Thanks. I've loved it. It's been, uh, I love the podcast. I've listened to quite a lot now and uh, it was great chatting. So hopefully if I get to do more than one book, I can come back and speak to you again in the future. That would be lovely. Sounds yeah. great. Keep us posted. Thanks very much. Nice right. to speak to you both. Thank you so much, Gareth, for joining us on Unstacked. The Book of Doors will be available in the library collection for checkout. It can also be purchased through your favorite bookstore and online vendor. Check out his website, garethbrownbooks.com, G-A-R-E-T-H-B-R-O-W-N-B-O-O-K-S.com. Stay safe and read, my friend. It's good for you. Bye. Bye.